Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of A Day With. This episode is called Around the World in 68 Days. Traveling, wow, how weird this sounds in the current situation with the COVID-19 pandemic all around the world. But you guys are in for a great trip today as I sit down with Rico Book Song, the author of Around the World in 68 Days. Rick is a Singaporean brand advisor, an author and editor of more than 30 books, an avid advisor to foreign governments on building their nation's brands. He's also an avid traveler visiting more than 80 countries. The book also features Haiga artwork for each of the 13 countries he visited in his journey. He has previously also been a columnist and political and arts journalist at The Straits Time, head of global media relations and strategic planning at the Singapore Economic Development Board. And last but not least, he was also head of public affairs for Southeast Asia with Hilan Nontan. He advised the Singapore government on many aspects of urban development, including the global launch of Gardens by the Bay and National Gallery Singapore. So full of accomplishments <laughs> I believe but I believe the one I personally was able to appreciate the most uh, was his ability to make my mind fly and travel with him around his 68 days journey so this is not a conventional travel book there's not a list of recommendations or places to go things to do or foods to try like we normally see on this type of traveling books this book is more of an exquisite interpretation of each nation's brand essence which I enjoyed a lot but also learned so Rick, welcome to A Day With Podcast. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to sit with you. How are you today? I'm, I'm very well, as, as well as can be under the circumstances of this uh, pandemic times. Thank you very much, uh, Fala, for having me in, in this conversation. I'm very pleased to meet you. The pleasure is mine. And I have to say also a big thank you to Holly Turner. She was the one introducing each other. And we are today at the Architude Gallery at Dempsey Hill in Singapore. It's an amazing space. So I think the scene is all set for, for this journey that you're going to take us today. So before we get into the book itself, would you you mind sharing a little bit with us uh, let's start with yeah your early days in your professional field right I, I started my uh, professional life as a, as a journalist that was my first uh, full-time job and it was actually quite by accident I had just come back from my first doing my first degree in Britain and I finished the rest of my national service and then it was um, school holidays and uh, I actually worked as a temp uh, with the newspaper uh, the Straits Times the main English daily in Singapore and they um, decided to offer me a job. So I, quite by accident, I became a, a journalist and I was with the Straits Times for 11 years. About half wow. that time, I was with the political desk as covering uh, politics. Um, the other half, I was in the the live uh, section, which is uh, features. Uh, for a time, I was the literary editor and also wrote about all the other all the other arts. Uh, uh, sometimes did theatre reviews, uh, visual arts, and etc. <laughs> so, in 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 a sense, and I also had a, a regular opinion column. It was called uh, Monday with Kobak Song, and it ran for almost a decade. So I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, in a sense, uh, it was like uh, I had been writing and thinking about Brand Singapore right from those days. So I actually have been doing it for like thir 33 years now. Yeah. So that, that, that was my, my first job. Great. And then how did the artistic side of you start to come about, you know, with the poetry and your art? You can also share a little bit about your exhibitions. For a while, I was the at first the English editor and then the general editor of an arts journal called Singer. It's like a national arts journal. For, for Haiga, it actually uh, came about 
just after 2015, when I was invited by the Japan Foundation in, in Japan uh, to visit the country as a, they have a cultural leaders uh, program. In, in the course of, of preparing for that trip and also the experiences that I, that I had from there, I came to know more about this art form called Haiga, which dates back to 16th century uh, Japan. And also realized that in the whole history of the visual arts across uh, human history, it's actually quite seldom that you see words and images on the same canvas. It's only in uh, Chinese art and, and a few other examples. Usually, the only words that you see on a painting are the artist's uh, uh, illegible or, yeah. <laughs> uh, signature, um, maybe, a, maybe a date, sometimes the place, but, but that's it. So I was quite intrigued by this art form, and even in Japan, uh, many Japanese might never have come even come across this 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 term. It, it, it's it's quite obscure actually, and I, I think it's because the the people who promoted just happened not to promote Haiga. Right. No, I'd never heard it before <laughs> until your book. And yes. And it was really nice because we did thirteen countries, right? And for each country, you did one of these art pieces, but it. For me, it was like exciting every time I finished one country when I was going to the next one. It really, in some way, it's not summarizing the spirit, let's say, of that country, but in some ways you're describing something so unique there. Yes, that's, that's right. So, so each uh, haiga artwork has a, has a haiku, uh, which is this Japanese poetic form of three lines. But I've, I've made some modifications. Uh, I've added a title, which haikus usually don't. Well, it's cheating a bit to, to add in a few more words. <laughs> And I also added rhyme, so the first and third lines rhyme. And in in some of my Haiga artworks, I also use a word from the language of, of that country, but I, I didn't do that for, for this, this book. You know, uh, people like to say that uh, a picture paints a thousand words, right? With, with Haiga, I like to flip that around and say that a word prompts a thousand mental images. So to me, words and pictures kind of bounce off each other and enrich the artwork in that way. I mean, the, the words give added meaning to the pictures and of course the picture also brings out what the words are trying to, to convey. And also to me, uh, Haiga is a, an art form that is very appropriate for our times. Especially, well, it, it, it fits nicely on a mobile phone on, uh, screen yes for our, it's so beautiful <laughs> even for a wall uh the paper you know the wallpaper for your phone yeah mm. yes I, either portrait or landscape it, yeah. it, it works and also the the haiku is so short which just fits the, sh the short attention span of our in our, a tweet <laughs> of our, our modern times it uh, was like the, the, the old the old word limit of of twitter exactly exactly there's also a term you use throughout the whole mm -hmm. book it's ichigo itch Am I pronouncing it correctly? Uh, ichigo Ichie. So what is this term and why was it important to mention this throughout your book? Well, Ichigo Ichie literally means one time, one moment. It's trying to convey the idea that uh, every experience in life, in all probability, will be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Therefore, we, we should be conscious of, of that and be ready to, to cherish every worthwhile mo moment because the likelihood of that moment being turning out to be once in a lifetime unique and special in some way. It's like the next step of carpe diem. 
Yes, it's interesting that you mentioned that because in, in the book, I tried to contrast Ichigo Ichie with Carpe Diem. Carpe Diem, of course, is the Western equivalent, if you like, <laughs> okay. of this Japanese term. And I, I tried to tease out one point of contrast, which is that for Ichi, the idea is essentially to, to be less conscious of the future, to seize the day to, and to enjoy the moment the present. right in front of you and not think too much about the future or, or, or the past or anything else. Just, just seize what's right in in front of you, FOMO and YOLO. <laughs> YOLO uh, yeah. But uh, Ichigo Ichi Eight uh, to me is almost the opposite. It is precisely because you are conscious of the future, how how transient it is, how precarious. Like we could have uh, heightened the uh, pandemic uh, measures introduced uh, at any moment. It is be- because of that consciousness of the future that we should all the more appreciate this moment. So in that sense, it is con- it's a contrast to Cafe Diem. Okay, amazing. I, I love, yeah, and especially now, you know, maybe before, I don't think anyone ever thought, oh, in case there's a pandemic, I'll do this. But now we know a pandemic can happen. And I think it's now part of our thought process, like there is a possibility of a second, third pandemic in the future, let's say. So in a modern world, like we were saying, that everyone has Facebook, Instagram, now TikTok is so instantaneous the way you can share memories Mm. and keep them also for Mm. yourself. Um, You decide to do a book. Your trip was in 2018. Instagram was very high. So uh, how did you manage to write it in a way that it captures the attention, I would say, equally or even more than the fast-paced, you know, social media type of mentality that we have right now? You know, someone that's traveling around the world and doing a vlog how would you say this gives someone like that value add versus Mm. you know the modern Mm. the modern way to to travel right well in in today's world a a book is like an ancient technology right but (laughs) i i like i like to think and i like to um sometimes just put this idea out there that actually books are are more enduring than anything digital i'll give a scenario to 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 back up that uh (laughs) outrageous claim, uh, which is that imagine some apocalyptic uh, time in the future. The earth has been destroyed and an alien uh, visits the earth. Without electricity or compatible device, the alien would be unable to access all the digital resources that have been created by mankind. But if this alien uh, visited the National Library of Singapore, uh, among the the ruins, the rubble, they might stumble upon some books which uh, would be the aliens only contact with the culture that was created by man so in in that scenario the, the book would is more enduring than anything digital i love your answer and i think yeah for instance that's the way now or historians when they were signed i don't know the ottoman empire they knew you know some of the wars and and people being part of the same empire just because of written things and if they had similar languages and they're mm. able to track that the written it's so important that eventually you know if everything goes off like you were saying the the example of the electricity yeah you still have this as like real memory yes. right something you can touch yes well well in in the book i i added elements that uh i, I hope um what kind of work uh, uses the lingo of today and i i tried to, wherever possible to make references to popular culture you know uh, that was my favorite part music, like, you know. music artist yeah. you mentioned my favorite artist too so 
last question before the we go into the book who or what was your muse you know when you were editing or when you were recollecting this memories i would have to say it would be my my wife uh, dora she i mean this trip wouldn't have happened without her it was it's only because of her spirit of adventure and her incredible uh, planning and organizational ability to make this trip uh, happen all, all i did was just suggest some additional destinations <laughs> Uh, I was the porter, provided security <laughs> during the trip, uh, etc. Perfect. Yeah. So to Dora, amazing. Let's get started. Around the world in 68 days. This time around, it's not 68 days. It's gonna take us less than 40 minutes. Let's give the listeners just a little glimpse of what they could expect in the book. Your first chapter is United Arab Emirates. You named it the Heights of Human Aspirations. So there's some cool facts over there that you share about singers or um, the poets too. What was your highlight here? To me, the the thing about the UAE is uh, summed up in in the word uh, superlative. I mean, everything is superlative. I mean, it's the the tallest skyscraper in the world, the largest uh, chandelier in a mosque, etc. So everything has to be the largest, the best the, in the world. And, and and I think this is one characteristic of of mankind. If you think back to the the pyramids of Giza in e- Egypt, I mean, man has always tried to to reach for the skies, uh, some sometimes literally. And uh, that was the the one thing that's me the most and then you mention Rumi the poet there I let's say these are cool things that I never really knew that Coldplay the band Coldplay they have variations from Rumi's poems mm. that are written around Abu mm. Dhabi I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for their songs this is why I think your book is so unique because again it's not like this is where you should go in Abu Dhabi or in Dubai it you're you're getting us with you as you're discovering these places and I think as a reader I was just so amazed how you would connect these places to current culture and just cool facts. Well, in each place, I try to cite an example that illustrates the quintessential characteristic of that place. Um, One feature of the UAE, and it also applies to Oman, is the extent to which these two Muslim um, countries really go out of their way to to connect with the world and to um, be as modern as possible in, in their outlook and and even their, their values. So this connection with Western culture or the culture of the rest of the world illustrates that. Yeah, one of my favorite things there was in Abu Dhabi, the mosque, which you mentioned. It's just an amazing place to be. Mm. The, it's beauty in all forms. So that gives us, you know, the lead to our second stop, Oman you mentioned is the silvers of sanctuary why is that i i, I already mentioned the the how oman is similar to 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 the uae in in the way that it it, it tries very very hard to connect with the, with the rest of the world uh, and if you visit the it's a royal opera house the way that they stage um western uh concerts and theater productions is is an example of, of that i also visited a part of the coast um where turtles come to to nest uh, at every uh, season and the, the image of the turtle is the one that i i use in the haiga for oman in a way it's it's like a metaphor for the country uh, itself the turtle uh, swims out into this vast and actually quite dangerous ocean uh, that's what oman is trying to do to connect with this vast and dangerous world outside <laughs> but just just like the turtle has always uh, knows how to go back to nest in the place where it was born oman just as it's trying to connect with the world is trying at the same time to preserve its own tradition and and culture and heritage 
That's, and you saw it as you were talking to people. How do they carry, you know, is it under outfits or how they speak that you... Yes, for example, the many Omani people still dress in tra traditional dress, but they might add a Ray-Ban uh, sunglasses. <laughs> uh, in a sense, that's like a, like a symbol of the modernity and tradition at the same time and in the same person. Amazing, I love that. The third stop was Madagascar. So I've never been there, but you said it's a, the microcosm of survival. All I know about Madagascar is the Disney movie. So could you paint us a picture? Did they do a good job describing, you know, this wildlife? And how was your experience there? Actually, I ha I've never watched uh, any of the Disney movies from, <laughs> from start to finish. I've only watched a bit of it. Okay. But I think most of it is actually located outside of Madagascar. So in that sense, no. The answer to your question is, is <laughs> no. Uh, I don't think that's what uh, the Disney movies were, were trying to do, to, to give you a sense of the real Madagascar. What really fascinated me about Madagascar is the fact that it is this it's actually a huge uh, island but it's it's 400 kilometers from the southeastern coast of, of Africa so it, it's been isolated for for a long time it, they're just just like the Galapagos Islands in uh, Ecuador it's nature is just is fascinating the the wildlife that you see there I think the most famous is the ring-tailed lemur one of the star characters in the, in the movie in addition to that what also fascinated me was the the ancestry of the people there the people of Madagascar are actually descendants of the intermarriages of people from Africa and Southeast Asia. These were people who actually gone onto um, canoes and rode all the way from what is today Indonesia to reach Madagascar. It's an in incredible distance to arrive there. So it, it's just uh, mind-boggling to think how they managed to complete that Right. that journey i had yes when i was reading it and i had no idea like the link with southeast asia mm. they speak french right currently there was the... yes yes they were mm -hmm. colonized by the french for yeah. for some time yeah. then after that one you went to kenya so you started with madagascar having a little bit of the taste of this wild but then you go to the heart of the wild i guess uh where you can see all forms of nature and animals mm. You named the Kenya, you named it Humility and Wonder. I want to see how was the high gather, but yeah, were you referring about the, you know, the, the way people were living there or the animals, the nature? Actually, it is a feeling, that idea is focused on uh, Mount uh, Kilimanjaro. Uh, I, I really wanted to see uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. And uh, the thing is that uh, with, with such a, a mountains, just like Mount Fuji, uh, Table Mountain and other uh, major peaks around the well, if you need to have some good fortune because uh, there are many days in which they're completely obscured by clouds. So I mean, we, we were in, in the Amboseli National Park for only two days and if those two days had been obscured by clouds then that would be it. But, <laughs> but luckily we managed to see Mount Kilimanjaro on both days and on the second day there was even a double uh, rainbow. So to me that was the highlight. Great. So after that, from Kenya, you went to Spain. That's the um, chapter that made me a little hungry <laughs> because <laughs> you went to Bilbao, which is in the north. So you name it the icon as a catalyst, right? What I don't know, what would you, would you like to share about your experience in Spain? I had visited Madrid and Barcelona on, on an earlier trip. 
this time I wanted to go to a different place and Bilbao was the most uh, I- I- iconic. I had previously done the, some work for the Centre for Livable Cities. It's an agency in Singapore that manages the Lee Kuan Yew World City Prize, mm-hmm. which is given to a city that uh, has been very successful in regenerating and rejuvenating it itself. Bilbao was the first city to win this prize in 2010. It is famous for what people call the Guggenheim uh, effect. Guggenheim Museum in in Bilbao, the way that it's able to draw um, the world's attention and generate a lot of related economic activity around it. And it's also the the spirit of the people, the the identity and the civic pride, stimulating the the imagination. I mean, when we visited, they had a major exhibition on uh, art from China through all its uh, troubled years of the Cultural Revolution to the modern day. So it is this um, regenerative power of culture which, you, which I tried to capture. And you mentioned that at the beginning people were not agreeing to have so much budget and money spent on the museum, mm. right? But now it changed their view because it has put together a lot more retail and tourism that, you know, gathered, put Bilbao in the eyes of people, right? Yes, it, it's the same with uh, most uh, art venues like this, even the Sydney Opera House and okay. even Singapore's uh, Ex- Esplanade. I mean, when the design is first unveiled, you get a lot of people criticizing it or questioning why so much public money is being spent, uh, etc. What today we might call the the haters. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anything you do, there's always going to be criticism. The Eiffel Tower too, I guess, Mm, people hated it, right? Yes. The stop number six is very dear to my heart. It's Colombia. So I guess you took the direct flight from Madrid to Bogota. Is that it? Yes. Mm-hmm. You say Colombia culture as power. I want to hear first your experience with Colombia. You know, um, why first? Why did you decide at Colombia? And then we'll get into it because, of course, you know, it's my country, so I for, have a lot of questions. For for Colombia, the the focus was uh, was Botero. I had been a fan of Botero for a long time. In, in fact, uh, in 2004, there was a major Botero show in Singapore. Uh, quite a few of his works were on display at the Singapore Art Museum and also public sculptures around town. And Botero actually gave a public talk at the Suntech City. And I, I attended that, that talk. At, at that time, I had already left the Straits Times, but I, I had a regular column every other week on the subject of leadership. I attended the talk and then I actually wrote a, a column on the relationship between art and, and leadership and included some remarks from uh, Botero. To me, you know, as a Colombian, and it's sad to say, we obviously know about Botero. We think people would know about it, but we don't know how big Botero is around the world Mm -hmm. and internationally, Mm -hmm. especially in Asia. Mm -hmm. Botero is huge. So I saw that sculpture and I was like, there's no way this is... So I went all the way there and it's a Botero. And to my surprise, and all around the city, there's the bird at the UOB um, in the Singapore River. There's many sculptures around Singapore and it's just amazing. I'm so happy to, to, to see, you know, how much he has impacted mm-hmm. the world. Y- yes, mm-hmm. yes. And, and I think he's one of the best examples of the power of culture. You also mentioned um, magical realism about Colombia, which mm. is a genre that Gabriel Garcia Marquez invented. And it's something that I think you can leave in between the streets of Colombia. In some way, when you came went to Colombia, did you feel some connections to what he mentions in his literature? I, I think it's actually immersed in, in the whole uh, 
all aspects of the culture of, of, of Colombia. Just, I was just looking at some artworks in this gallery uh, just outside, uh, the Colombian artist. And in, in the write-up, he talks about magical realism as well. So it, you can see it in the, even in painting, dance and music and all, all aspects. So it, it's really it's all pervasive. Great. And my last question about Colombia. Um, so it's, and because I know you've done so much work about branding with international, you know, governments in many mm. countries. So Colombia is an interesting case because we've been trying to change the view so much internationally about obviously our past with the narco traffic and, you know, for me personally, and I know my friends, when we travel around and the first thing someone says, where are you from? You say Colombia, and they say, oh, cocaine, you know, for us, it's, it's just a joke that was maybe 50 years ago relevant, but not mm. anymore. And there's a lot of time and budget that we as a country and personally people have spent mm. to try to change that image. What do you think we've been doing right? What do you think should be done? Uh, how can a country, you know, continue building a brand for the better? I think what what, what you mentioned, uh, the history of um, drug trade yeah. and, and all that. That is, of course, that, that is something negative in, in the past. In my book, uh, Brand Singapore, the, which is the, a study of the country brand of Singapore, I, I coined this term called a brand keloid which means something negative about your brand, which is like a, like a scar which doesn't, doesn't go away. Of course, if you try to remove that scar, it, it could be inconvenient and maybe even um, painful. Yeah, we but, heard more. But the thing to do is uh, leave it alone and live your life, uh, carry on with your life. So it is impossible to remove the keloid completely. Don't try to, to do that. But in, instead, just focus your energies on, on highlighting the positives, of which there are so many. You know, there's Potero, there are many other aspects of, of, of of Colombian culture, your uh, painting, music, yeah. and then there are some modern celebrities who are also okay. So leave it the past behind and yes, just yes. keep building. Just move forward. And, yeah. Yeah. Great. Let's continue this journey. We're halfway there. After Colombia, you went to Costa Rica. Small and smart. That's how you named it. I think the Costa Rica's greatest asset is unspoiled uh, nature. Some unique species of, of monkeys and, and, and especially it's uh, well sloths and, and also the, the frog which is uh, probably the which, which I took as that metaphor for, for Costa Rica like in particular this frog called the strawberry poison dart frog which is like smaller than your little finger and it has a brilliant and deep colors it, it's nicknamed the blue jeans uh, frog because it the, the body is red the, the legs are, are, are blue so it okay, looks like body red the, the, legs. The, the legs are blue okay so blue jeans okay got yeah, it so, like, <laughs> as if the, the legs are wearing blue jeans yeah but to me because the, the forearms are also blue it looks more like spider-man a spider-man <laughs> spider-man costume but the thing about this frog is that it projects poison uh, to ward off uh, predators and it makes itself more conspicuous in it in its brilliant colors so that predators will know to avoid it so the point i, I was trying to make is that uh, for a small country like like costa rica anyone from singapore would be able to identify with the challenges of being small small it, you need is to that be smart. <laughs> if, if if you're ever in trouble and you need to call for help more people will come to your to your help if they if they know you if if you're more outstanding like like the frog yeah Great. After that, you went to Cuba, the Iceland of isolation and invasion. 
did it shock you in any way to feel back in time like try you know living in the 50s and, and as your you know all your background with branding did you see a lot of the revolution type of language also around the city yes it, it was quite uh, fascinating to see the way that uh, many of the the, the the way that society is organized uh, which we knew under under uh, Soviet communism well, was still in place I mean like people have to go to a government uh, uh, shop to collect the rice and uh, sugar and, and other necessities and I, I just can't help wondering how life must be like in, in the last two two years and under the pandemic with uh, tourism practically cut off completely life must be have got gotten a lot uh, yeah. more difficult and as we speak they're going through a bad moment right now so yeah but the the, the spirit of the people is just uh, amazing and how they manage to overcome all this adversity and when you chat with uh, uh, Cubans they they are so knowledgeable and plugged into the world although they have so such limited access to the internet yeah. it, it's just amazing and talking about small countries Cuba internationally we all drink Cuba Libres like you mentioned so much and here in Singapore we have a, a you know specific restaurant Cuba Libre so yes the impact internationally is just huge yes yes Com- the, despite all the restrictions and uh, all the troubles they've had to, to endure yeah. yeah right after that I guess you were doing the tour there in Central America you went to Panama called between the two oceans and you compared a little bit to the Singapore of South America so is it because it's just such a strategic position that Panama has? Yes, well, of course, I, I'm seeing all this through Singaporean eyes. Right? Yeah. Singapore has always uh, drawn the, the world's attention because of its strategic uh, position, it, its geography. Mm. Uh, from ancient times, uh, being an important port on the maritime Silk Road uh, between um, China and Europe and, and the Middle East. And couldn't help but see all, all the parallels with, with Panama and its canal and everything that it stands for in connecting uh, international trade and different parts of, of the world. And also the way that Panama is actually quite multicultural, like, like, like Singapore in, in some ways. For example, it has a significant uh, Chinese and Asian uh, community among its uh, population. Mm-hmm. And if you look at its, uh, its architecture, it's similar to Singapore in, in many ways. Oh yes, when you're landing and you see yes, the super yes. huge building right in front of the beach. And then after Panama, you went to Mexico, which I consider my soul Mexican. <laughs> it's one of my favorite. I've been to Mexico many times. I love the food there. So you named Mexico Second Firmer Ground. So you went to the pyramids. You also did a tour with the Diego Rivera's work. Amazing. I love freedom and all of that art mm. history that they have. However, I was surprised that you didn't talk that much about the Mexican food. Is there a specific reason? Um, well, <laughs> Am I uh, putting you on the spot? Well, frankly, <laughs> frankly, Mexican food is not my favorite food. Oh my I mean... I don't. Well, it's a spicy. Don't, Singapore people like yeah, spicy. <laughs> I don't dislike it. It's just it's not in my top 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 few. So so uh, I didn't pay very much attention to the food. And also I, I'm fairly familiar with Mexican food. Okay. 
so there wasn't very much to 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 discover. To, to discover. Um, I was more interested in discovering other aspects. So, what do you refer by saying seeking firmer ground? Um, again, I was researching the the, the history, and it, there's this fascinating place in the middle of the city uh, where they had done excavations uh, into the what what the ancient civilizations built, and they had been built over many many times. And the the, the pyramids are also Teotihuacan are also in a sense also building over what it was like in in, in the past. So the history is multi-layered, and which is what the Rivera's work also tries to show the the, the many layers of, of, of history, indigenous, the Spanish, and more modern times, and all the other influences, the uh, economic, religious, political. So uh, I was just trying to capture that that struggle, which is uh, something we we share across all cultures. This desire to record and remember our history, while also trying to to forge a, a new uh, future for ourselves. See, this is why I find so fascinating this book, and honestly, everyone that has a chance to read it, have a, a look at it, because. I've been to Mexico so many times and Mexico City and never saw that, you know, and and I think through your interpretation, it's just a way of also dreaming a little bit. Mm -hmm. Great. So then after that, you go to Guatemala, tradition amidst turmoil. Never been to Guatemala. So what can you share about Guatemala? Actually, earlier I mentioned to you that in planning the itinerary, my input was just to suggest a few additional <laughs> Uh, destinations. Guatemala was one that I, I suggested. Actually, my wife had planned a few more days in Mexico, but I said since we have a few days, why don't we just do a side trip to uh, Guatemala? I I wanted to get to experience a bit a bit of Guatemala, especially Antigua, which is this uh, ancient uh, town, which is has got this magnificent uh, cobbled streets with a church and with the vol volcano as the as the backdrop. Amazing. Mm. Great. And so I guess after that, you were already looking your way back home. And so you, the next stop was Japan. So you named Japan at Southeast Asia's edge. So you visited Okinawa and Fukuoka, which are not the typical places of, of Japan. I guess you had already been to Tokyo before. So not the typical cities. What did you choose those two? Earlier, I mentioned uh, to you that in 2015, I, I visited Japan uh, at the invitation of the Japan Foundation on a cultural leaders uh, program. I had uh, visited o Okinawa then, but I wanted to share that experience with, with my wife. And also, I'm quite fascinated uh, by Okinawa because it's, it's really different from the rest of, of Japan. Uh, it's uh, Chinese influence and also it's uh, contact with uh, Southeast Asia. I'm very interested in, in places that are on the on the boundaries of, of worlds. It's like uh, Istanbul, which is between Asia and Europe, or Morocco, which is between Africa and Europe, and Singapore, in in a sense, not not geographically but culturally. You know, uh, East and West uh, yeah. meet here. So in in that sense, it's, it belongs to me. It belongs in in this group of of places which are kind of like at, at the nexus of two cultures or two worlds. Great. And then you, your term, um, or about their term, ikagi, ikagai. Ikigai. Well, simply it means the purpose for living. You know, what, what makes you get up um, in, in the morning? I mean, like today, my, my ikigai was to be in, in this uh, <laughs> podcast conversation Amazing. Mine with, too. <laughs> with you. And I was, it's a highlight uh, of, of my day. And it's certainly an ichigo, ichie moment. So ikigai means uh, your, your, your purpose for living. So if you have a, a purpose for living, um, you probably have enjoy life more, you have a fuller life. Research seems to suggest that 
you would also have a a longer life because that, that that's how that's how our bodies work. I mean, if our minds and hearts engaged and contented, then there's physical benefits that you can uh, derive from that. And did you see the people in Okinawa had that a lot of like purpose in the everyday life? Okinawa is known for the relatively higher life expectancy. Although in recent years it it has declined among the forty seven prefectures of of Japan. So I, I had a a lunch with a few uh, seniors and and they shared how they their routines and their diet and their mm. their life and I got got a glimpse of the, this topic which actually has been um, studied quite quite a bit that higher life expectancy. Okay. That, that you find in Okinawa. Amazing. And then we are to our last top, going to our last top. It's Taiwan, spirit of enterprise. So you ended your trip there. I think you, I love the analogy you were mentioning about, you know, having um, symmetry, sorry, having symmetry because you started your trip in Dubai, one of the world's tallest buildings, and then you ended in Taipei 101. Mm. So um, yeah, tell us a little bit about your last stop in, in Taiwan. I had uh, visited uh, Taiwan a couple of times uh, before. And it was, uh, Taiwan is uh, also a very interesting place because of its of its history and all the politics that's, that's surrounding it. Just like uh, there's something in common with Cuba and other places in the way that the people have this immense spirit you know, to overcome all this adversity and this, all these uncertainties and all these external problems pressures, you know, major powers uh, trying to sometimes in- intimidate or, hmm. or... Play the big guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you always have to fend off all these uh, external forces. Great. And then Taiwan, I guess, back to Singapore where mm. you hit home, right? And I mean, we've done around the world in, in a few minutes, but um, I hope this gives a glimpse of what the book is. However, the book is honestly so much more. I, I just really want to say, you know, you give me this book on a Friday and I read it through the weekend and it made my weekend. It said, Ichigo Ichie. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Moment where I felt that I was like, my mind was going away for a little bit i think we're all stuck due to COVID, and instead of making me sad that i cannot travel because that's what you would normally feel about you know all of these places to go and you're not being able to do it it was the opposite so first of all thank you for writing it (laughs) but before we go i have some quick questions for you first thought or you know response that come into your mind what was the best or most memorable moment of the trip? I think uh, you mentioned it indirectly just now. It was that moment in on, on the observation deck of the Taipei 101 tower where I happened to notice in, in a corner of one window sill the, the Kibla sign, which is the sign that you usually see in the drawer of a hotel a bedside uh, table, right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or it's usually there or, or some other obscure uh, part of the room on, on the floor in a corner or somewhere, which indicates the direction of Mecca, the, which um, Muslims need when they pray. Mm. To me, it, it just added an extra dimension to the, the symmetry of the two skyscrapers in connecting, because the, the, the cable points towards Mecca, which is in Saudi Arabia, but it, of course, it's also pointing to the UAE, which is the neighboring country where we had started the, the, the journey. So it it, it just uh, gave a sense of, of completeness to the whole uh, trip. And, and also, there's also the, the element of um, connection 
between the two countries and the two the two worlds, which uh, was a running theme throughout all the places that I visited. And when you were writing, it's also like connecting everything, right? The whole trip, the whole world. Yes. And I don't know yes. if I was already like so sentimental at that point, but I was like, oh, that's so sweet, you know, when you wrote it. However, on the other hand, what was the most agonizing moment, if you recall? I think it would... There, there weren't many. Uh, the, the trip was like... In incredibly hassle-free. None of my worst nightmares materialized. But the, the most agonizing moment would be the night when we had a... We were in Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, and we were going to catch a 3 a.m. flight. And so we had to get to the airport. So we left the airport around midnight to reach there around 1 a.m., like two hours before the flight. And when we looked at the screen in the in the hotel, our flight wasn't shown there. But the concierge said, oh, maybe there's some uh, some problem with the computer. You just carry on and make your way to the airport. But when we got to the airport, we were told that the flight had been cancelled. Oh. So uh, I suspect it was because there weren't enough passengers on that <laughs> flight. So they moved everyone to the next the flight the next day. So we had an extra day in, in Nairobi. A win-win at the end yeah, of the day, uh, I guess. Well, one day fewer in Bilbao, but one day more in Nairobi. So. Yeah. What would be something you would do differently if you knew back then? Because you did this trip in 2018, you came back and literally COVID happened right after. So if you knew that was going to happen, would you have done something different? I, I um, haven't, I've only just started trying to imagine what would be like. But I, I would think if, if I had known, I think I, uh, I would have been moving around in a, in a frenzy, right? Trying to take more photos, uh, pick up more souvenirs or, or, or just get try to gather more input more memories <laughs> in in the in the space of uh, um, in the, the short time that that you have yeah it, it's kind of like knowing how much time you have left on this earth i mean if you knew that you would certainly live your life com completely differently right yeah. the, the the only reason we can be be calm and relaxed is if it's because we don't know yeah. <laughs> right right my last question is, it's really more personal because while I was re reading your book, I remember my own experiences. I have traveled and visited many of the territories that you visited. And I did that when I was younger in my teenager years and mm. in university. And I think that's a perfect moment to travel because, you know, as a teenager, you get so many holidays or university, you all sometimes get months of holidays and, and you always want to go and discover the world. So I did that. You know, I was very fortunate to, to be able to do it. And then I couldn't help not to think about the teenagers and younger people right now that are in those years. And I'm sure their desire is to go and explore the whole world, do, you know, around the world in 100 days or, or you know, live abroad. However, they are living through, you know, the most unfortunate year that we could ever see in our years, yeah, COVID-19, mm -hmm. and they're stuck at home for over a year now. What message would you send to them? Um, I guess uh, my message could be, I think it could be broken up in, into two parts. One is that, uh, the, well, the good times will, will come back for sure. So don't worry about that. Uh, we're all hoping that it will come 
uh, soon and I, I think it's already in sight. So th th that's the first part. The second part is in the meantime, there are many things uh, to do, to see, to discover and to enjoy. I mean like Singapore may be, uh, may be small physically but uh, there's a lot of diversity here whether it's um, culture or nature or access to, to information or, or ways to connect with other people in the, in the world. So there's, there's no end of things that we can do while we are not able to travel. There are lots of things that we, we can do. It could be something very, very mundane or everyday. Like, uh, for example, this morning, I photographed this really tiny, tiny insect that i never seen before. And I, I do that all, all the time. And every day I try to try to get at least one uh, unusual wildlife photo. Could be a passing bird or, or even a earthworm or, 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 or something tiny that you wouldn't normally pay attention to. So there, there are lots of uh, Ichigo, Ichie moments all throughout our lives. I think that's the message. Ichigo, Ichie, you know, uh, try to live that way. But uh, mm. thank you for giving also that hope. I think you're totally right. Well, Rick, thank you so much for taking some time and allowing me to sit with you. I feel honored. I hope that you enjoyed the episode, but I hope mostly that everyone out there um, enjoyed listening a little bit of what you did in this amazing work around the world in 68 days. Where can they find the book if, if they wanted to get your book? It's, it's available in, uh, in a few um, uh, bookshops and quite a few online uh, stores as well. And it, it's also in the, in the National Library. Okay, so basically on, on any bookstore in, in Singapore? The, the main stores. Okay. And there are quite a few smaller stores mm -hmm. that also have them, like the Hux Epigram uh, Coffee Bookshop. Yeah. And smaller bookstores like the Grits Coffee, it's a cafe in Chinatown, uh, The Moon, which is a few doors away, and uh, another one also in Chinatown, uh, littered with books. Amazing. Actually, yeah, without knowing, I went to Grits Cafe over the weekend and I saw some of your books there and also your art. So if people would like to have something to do on the weekend, it's definitely nice to see also your artwork there. Yes, apparently at, at Grits Coffee, if you're, even if you're there for, for takeaway, you can just go upstairs and see a small display of, of prints. Of, of my Haiga artworks from the book, all, all 13 of them. Amazing, great. Well, this has been all for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. If you would like to see some pictures, videos behind the scenes of this episode, you can go to our Instagram page. It's at adaywith.podcast and uh, we will be sharing some um, insights there. And then please subscribe to listen to all of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, Rick, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Paula. It's a, a privilege and a great pleasure. <laughs>